This podcast contains elements that may be alarming to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. You are now listening to British Brothers, the True Cry Podcast. And welcome to British Murders, the podcast focusing exclusively on British murder cases and serial killers. I'm your host Stuart Blues and this is the first episode of season 11. Before we get into it, let's break the ice. The show's first opening icebreaker segment is this. Two facts that sound like bullshit. Did you know 40% of all rivers in England and Wales are polluted with sewage? Sewage is released directly into our rivers on a relatively frequent basis because during periods of high rain, combined sewer overflows release untreated sewage into rivers and streams. It prevents our homes from flooding, but obviously comes with devastating side effects. Now it's time for the show's final opening icebreaker segment. Random quote of the day. A river cuts through rock, not because of its power, but because of its persistence. That was said by author James N. Watkins. Now this case was suggested by listener Tara James via Messenger, and we're in the town of Ammonford, located in Carmarthenshire, southwest Wales. It's situated around 15 miles north of the coastal city of Swansea. As always, here are your five quickfire facts about Ammonford. Number one. The so-called Battle of Ammonford occurred in 1925 when 200 police officers were ambushed by miners on the Pontaman Bridge, hope I'm saying that right, whilst on their way to deal with a picket at Number 2 Pit in Ammonford. Number 2, according to the 2001 census, 75.88% of the Ammonford population were competent in the Welsh language. Number three, the original name for Ammonford was Cross Inn, so named after, you guessed it, an inn in the town. Number four, the name Ammonford was eventually settled on, and it's adopted from Ford of the River Ammon, which runs through the town. And finally, number five, Ammonford hosted the National Eisterford. I'm, I'm always saying that wrong. The Eisterford, it's that national thing they do in Wales, in 1922 and 1970. The approximate population of Ammonford, according to the 2011 census, is just over 5,000. This case is a chilling anomaly that defies the typical patterns of homicide. In most instances, we understand that the perpetrator knows their victim intimately, whether they be a partner, family member or acquaintance. 33% of female homicide victims aged 16 and over were killed by their partner or ex-partner in the year ending March 2022. 13% were killed by family members and 9% were killed by friends or acquaintances. Among those harrowing statistics lies another category. Did you know that 7% of female homicide victims aged 16 years and over were killed by a complete stranger? The tragedy I'm about to discuss involves an individual who had no prior knowledge of his victim, a fact that adds an unnerving layer to this already distressing tale. The absence of a clear-cut motive creates a void that leaves investigators and grieving family members with several unanswered questions. Why were they targeted? Were there secrets the family didn't know about? Was it simply a case of being in the wrong place at the wrong time? 
Unfortunately, in cases such as this, the only person who knows why they did what they did is the perpetrator. I'd like to first introduce Kelly Hyde, a Carmarthenshire native who was actually born in London in, I believe, 1983. She made the move to southwest Wales as a baby, moving there with her mum and dad, Barbara and Andy, as well as her siblings. Attending the bilingual Trey Gibbs school between the ages of 11 and 16, Kelly was a popular pupil who got on well with those who knew her. Her warm nature, kind personality and excellent creative skills meant that she was the sort of person everyone wanted to associate with and get to know better. Her infectious energy drew others towards her like moths to a flame. Her friends no doubt sought solace in her company during joyous and challenging times alike because they knew she would bring warmth and laughter into their lives whilst also providing much-needed comfort. Her creativity flourished in school when it came to art. Kelly was a talented artist whose fantastic drawings brought great pleasure to both her teachers and family. Another of Kelly's main passions was horse riding. Described as a talented rider, she was a member of Clandiloch Riding Club and even worked for a period at a riding stables in the county. The thing that stood out for me when researching Kelly's background wasn't just her radiant personality. It was her unrivaled lust for life. Living life to the fullest came naturally to Kelly. She seized every waking moment with unyielding enthusiasm. It's a fact that makes this story all that more heartbreaking. Having moved out of the family home as she moved into her adult years, Kelly lived in a property on New Road in Pantyfunon. Living with her was her beautiful dog, a whippet called Scrappy. The pair shared an incredible bond and enjoyed regular walkies together. September was always a busy month for Kelly because it meant sorting out a car. Her annual MOT test was always due that month, so she did what everyone in that situation has to do. Contact a local garage, book it in, and cross the fingers and toes that it passed with nothing more than an advisory or two. In 2007, Kelly made arrangements to book her car's MOT at Brinteg Garage in Ammonford on September 27th. Seeing as the garage was within walking distance of her home, Kelly decided to take Scrappy along with her to drop the car off that morning so they could enjoy a nice walk together back home. The plan was to pick the car up later that day, assuming it passed with no problems, but little did she know that this routine appointment and walk would be the last thing she'd ever do. It's not often you hear about people being murdered in broad daylight at mid-morning in a well-populated area with plenty of potential witnesses. Sadly, that's exactly what happened in this case. As Kelly headed home that morning, the route would have taken her along Mill Terrace, across the River Lucha, before eventually joining New Road. Between Mill Terrace and New Road, however, there's a large area of grassy woodland, ideal for walking a dog across. Each source I used to research this episode indicated that Kelly walked with Scrappy along a bridle path on her way home. I struggle to find it on Google Maps, but it's likely something those local to the area know about. The walk would have taken Kelly a good hour, especially when you consider she was walking with Scrappy. She received a text message at 9.53am, but did not reply to it. It's unclear why that was, because the specific time of the attack I'm about to discuss is unknown to me, although I believe it occurred between 10 and 11am. 
It's plausible that Kelly just wanted to get home and was too distracted by Scrappy to check her phone. The last person to see Kelly that morning was a man called Vincent Leach. Vincent lived at Mill Terrace and had begun the morning by resuming painting the outside of his parents' house, a job he'd started a day or two earlier. As he did so, he spotted Kelly walking Scrappy past his house. Given it'll have taken around 40 minutes to get from the MOT garage to Mill Terrace, it's a fair assumption that the time was around half nine or a quarter to ten. The two shared a quick glance and a mutual smile before Kelly went on with her journey. Vincent said of the brief incident, I looked at her and she looked at me. We made eye contact. She smiled at me and I smiled back. Turning back to the house and applying more paint, just a few minutes later, Vincent spotted someone else on the street. This time it was a boy, he didn't look much older than 15 or 16, standing alone and staring in the direction Kelly was walking. The teen, who was wearing a grey Lonsdale hoodie, soon proceeded to walk in that same direction. Vincent didn't think much of it at the time, why would he? The last thing he would have thought was about to happen was that the youngster was actively following Kelly with murderous intentions. About half an hour after Kelly received the text message she never replied to, Scrappy was seen wandering around Mill Terrace alone. The dog had no lead and appeared to be wandering around aimlessly, as if lost and unsure what to do. The next time Kelly's phone pinged to a nearby transmitter was at 10.58am, which indicates that her phone was still switched on and able to make and receive calls. Within the following hour, that changed. Her phone suddenly stopped pinging the transmitter and appeared to have been turned off or destroyed. That made Kelly's already worried parents, Barbara and Andy, more panicked as they were unable to contact their beloved daughter. Their call attempts were going straight to voicemail and none of the messages appeared to be being received. Soon enough, they informed the police and a missing person inquiry was opened. To disappear without a trace went so against type with Kelly that the police were immediately concerned for her safety. It would have been so out of character for her to go off the radar and ignore her mum and dad's contact attempts. It also lacked sense for her to willingly go off grid when she'd just dropped her car off at a garage and was due to pick it up later that day. Her parents and the police had an awful feeling that something terrible might have happened. The youth spotted by Vincent was spotted by another witness at around 11am on the same bridle path Kelly was walking on, however he was no longer wearing the grey hoodie. He appeared to have either changed clothes or simply removed the hoodie because the second witness stated he was wearing a yellow t-shirt. I'll come back to that later in the story. The three days following Kelly's sudden disappearance were manic. Search and rescue teams joined officers from David Poe's police to scour the areas surrounding Mill Terrace in the hopes of finding any clue that would help them locate Kelly. Finally, on September 30th, dog handler PC Alan Williams, led by his dog Jack, a Belgian shepherd, found the body of a young woman in a stream just off a bridal path. She was lying face down in the water and was found after Jack picked up her scent after smelling an item of her clothing. The body was that of Kelly Hyde. The story will continue after these quick messages. 
And now, back to the story. She was found close to a disused colliery, which, based on some research of the local area, was likely the old Wernos colliery, which is situated right next to a section of Furus Brook, I think I'm saying that right, which divides the local authority administrative areas between Clanedi and Clandibia community councils. Again, apologies for my rubbish pronunciation there. As Jack led PC Williams from Mill Terrace, he became agitated around 400 metres away from where the discovery was made. There was evidence of some trampled undergrowth to the left of the deposition site, but the first thing Jack recovered from the stream was a shoe. It was, in fact, PC Williams who then spotted Kelly. Within a day or two of finding Kelly's body, officers found themselves at the front door of a property on Mill Terrace. It appears as though Jack had followed the scent of another item of clothing, possibly the discarded hoodie I mentioned earlier, which had led to the police executing a dawn raid on this particular property. As they burst through the front door, a teenage boy inside awoke drastically from his slumber, with detectives explaining that he was under arrest on suspicion of murder. He replied, Murder? You've got to be joking. The teenager in question was the same youth Vincent had spotted heading in the same direction as Kelly almost a week earlier. He was the same person spotted first wearing a grey hoodie and then a yellow t-shirt an hour or so later. His full name was Adrian Vivian Jones and at the time of this story's events he was just 16 years old. Most of the background information I found regarding Jones comes either from his mum or from himself. So perhaps it could be considered a tad biased, but it's the only information I was able to find during my research. Based on their respective testimonies, Jones, who was born circa 1991, had a torrid time throughout his childhood. At school, he was viciously bullied regularly, and the suffering didn't end when the school bell rang. Once back home, he was forced to watch his dad physically assault his mum, Diane, on numerous occasions. The trauma he undoubtedly went through doesn't justify what he did, but I believe it's important to provide objective background information from both sides in each case. The bullying issues at school eventually stopped, but only at the expense of Jones being expelled. His behaviour clearly became too troublesome for the teachers to manage. Based on the fact he would go on to receive convictions for burglary, theft of cars, criminal damage and bizarrely chasing cows, one can only imagine what antics he got up to at school that led to his expulsion. As so many troubled kids do, Jones soon turned to drugs to numb the emotional pain he suffered daily. Cannabis was his gateway drug, with cocaine then becoming his narcotic of choice. Both drugs affected his already damaged mental well-being, leading to a drastic deterioration of his mental health. With Jones now in custody and a murder charge looming, he went for the denial tactic. He insisted that on the day in question, he was in bed when Kelly was said to have been killed, so he couldn't possibly have been the person responsible for her murder. His vehement denial directly opposed the clear-cut evidence recovered from his home, though. In the attic, Scrappy's lead was recovered, and it was soaked in blood, later confirmed as being Kelly's. A shoe print found close to the deposition site also led police directly to Jones, with a training shoe being recovered that had bloodstains within its stitching. 
Perhaps Jones had made a half-hearted attempt to clean the shoes rather than disposing of them. The blood, again, was Kelly's. Most telling of all was the fact that detectives found a dumbbell, or possibly a barbell, depending on which source you use, which matched one found close to where Kelly's body was recovered. The one at Jones's house was a direct match. It was the other's twin, one source said. The other also had traces of Kelly's blood on it, further implicating Jones in her murder. When attempting to explain how he came to possess Scrappy's lead, Jones told the interviewing officers that he'd gone for a stroll along the bridle path and was smoking a joint when he spotted the discarded lead. He claimed to have not realised that it was covered in blood until he got home. He did admit to having spotted a small amount of what he thought may have been blood on the ground next to the lead, but just assumed an animal had been attacked by another animal, a fox perhaps. He thought nothing more of it. The grim reality was that Jones had taken Scrappy's lead home either in an attempt to hide evidence or more concerningly as a keepsake and a morbid reminder of what he'd done that morning. Perhaps it was both. Kelly's funeral took place on October 26, 2007 at Clanelli Crematorium and was led by Reverend Pauline Barnett. Over 200 people packed into the crematorium to pay their respects, with Kelly's body being brought to the location in a horse-drawn carriage. Her two favourite songs, Here Without You by Three Doors Down and Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin, were played during the proceedings. By the time Jones's trial came around in the summer of 2008, he continued to plead his innocence. The plethora of evidence essentially had him banged to rights, but his consistent lies to police and amendments to his statements meant that his reliability regarding his innocence plea was brought further into question. That July, he was found guilty of murdering Kelly by a majority verdict, which surprised me to be honest. The jury deliberated for over 10 hours as well. It'd be interesting to hear the logic behind the not guilty decisions made by some of the jurors. The shocking details of Kelly's murder and her cause of death were revealed in court, and I won't be going into them here as I don't find it necessary, but the prosecution explained that Jones had struck Kelly multiple times in the head with the bar or dumbbell before dragging her body to the stream and heading home. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, the fact that Jones did not know Kelly makes this case that much more frightening, as what happened to her, in theory, could happen to anyone, at any time. Kelly did absolutely nothing wrong, and frustratingly, there doesn't appear to be anything she could have done that she didn't to prevent this tragedy from happening. Mr Justice Davis explained when sentencing Jones at Swansea Crown Court that a minimum of 12-year imprisonment was where he had to begin, but given that Jones had already spent 286 days in custody, he was handed a sentence of 11 years and 79 days. Jones reportedly showed no signs of emotion or a shred of remorse as his sentence was read out and he was led away from the dock. Mr Justice Davis said, Quite why you killed Kelly Hyde is known only to you. What one can say is that the person who killed an attractive young woman, innocently walking a dog along a river for no reason at all, there is no motive either of sex or robbery, must be considered a dangerous person. This was a savage case of beating a woman to death. It was a very sustained attack on a defenceless young woman. There were numerous blows to Kelly. Mercifully, there is reason to think that the first blow would have rendered her unconscious. 
In the immediate aftermath of the sentencing, Andy and Barbara Hyde did not make any comments. However, they had previously worked on victim impact statements which were released ahead of the hearing. In hers, Barbara mentions how she used to visit the spot where her daughter's body was found every single Thursday for a good few months afterwards because it was on a Thursday that she was killed. Always visiting between 10 and 11am, Barbara placed fresh flowers at the site each week. Eventually, she purchased some lovely artificial flowers and left them there without worrying about them wilting, constantly having to replace them. Barbara ensured the artificial flowers were black and red, Kelly's favourite colours. As a reminder of Kelly's presence, Barbara said she keeps one of her daughter's towels folded up under her pillow to comfort her, as she feels there is Kelly's DNA on it. Some of Kelly's clothes are also kept at the top of Barbara's wardrobe. Regarding hearing about the discovery of Kelly's body, Barbara said, When Kelly's body was found, I felt such a great relief. I remember the relief and feeling that the wondering, the stress had been lifted. On saying that, came the realisation that I would no longer see Kelly. The realisation my daughter had been taken away from me. I would not see her walk down the aisle and get married. I would not see her children or my grandchildren from Kelly. Andy Hyde said in his victim impact statement, At the age of 24, Kelly has been robbed of her life, her future and all the potential possibilities and promise that we hoped for her. The love of a lifelong partner, a happy marriage, children, the normal and yet so very special things that many of us take for granted. The final part of this episode focuses on what happened to Jones post-sentencing. He appears to have been sent directly to Ashworth Hospital, one of only three hospitals in the country providing services for patients who require treatment and care in conditions of high security. The reason for Jones being sent there rather than a prison was due to his deteriorating mental health. He was quickly diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and would go on to gain a significant amount of weight whilst in care. An attempt to appeal his murder conviction was given in the spring of 2009, but by that October, the Court of Appeal had rejected it. Lady Justice Haller argued that the case against Jones was unarguable from the start, and the evidence against him was overwhelming. Jones did ultimately accept responsibility for killing Kelly as the years went by, but it seems as if his mental state at the time is what was being brought into question. I don't think there was ever any doubt that he hadn't killed Kelly. It was more about whether it was murder or potentially manslaughter by reason of diminished responsibility. A turbulent few years followed, with Jones reportedly attempting to take his own life, but a renewed sense of purpose returned in September 2015 when he applied to the Criminal Cases Review Commission to have his case referred back to the Court of Appeal. By 2016, he was staying in Bridgen's Caswell Clinic after being diagnosed with sleep apnea, depression and anxiety. He was by then classed as severely obese and had to wear a mask connected to a continuous positive airway pressure machine to help with his breathing during the night. Another potential attempt to take his own life came in early 2018 when Jones took an excessive amount of fat burner pills. His reason for doing so was his extremely low mood stemming from the shame he felt from what he'd done to Kelly. Shortly after 10am on February 18th, 2018, staff at the Caswell Clinic heard the CPAP machine beeping in Jones' room. Despite the mask being over his face, there was no response from him. 
and he didn't appear to be breathing. He also had no pulse. He was officially pronounced dead at 10.30am after staff at the clinic tried and failed to successfully perform CPR. Jones's cause of death was classed as being due to natural causes with underlying conditions including deep vein thrombosis, severe obesity, hypertension and asthma all contributing. The appeal of Jones's case to the CCRC continued after his death with his family pursuing the case. A spokesperson for the CCRC in November 2019 said, The Criminal Cases Review Commission has referred the murder conviction of Adrian Jones to the Court of Appeal. There was supposed new evidence that had been brought to light after the CCRC conducted a detailed review of the case, which included reports from several psychiatric experts. The last update on the CCRC's website regarding Jones's posthumous appeal was on October 19, 2021, and there's been nothing since then. I've no idea what the current status is with it, but one thing's for sure. The world lost one of its best people on September 27, 2007. Kelly Hyde will forever be missed by her friends and family. Her story deserves to be told. Her memory deserves to be cherished. And justice deserves to be served. And that was the story of the murder of Kelly Hyde. Thanks again Tara James for suggesting that case. I'd love to hear everyone's thoughts on it. I've got four new reviews to read this week. Martin Eastwood left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, I found your podcast by accident on Spotify and I'm now hooked. The short story style of your narration is really easy to digest as I drive around at work. Engaging and informative, you have a voice that's easy to listen to. Keep up the good work. Colin CL left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It reads, Been listening for over a year now. Just love how Stuart keeps you engaged in the stories while showing the utmost respect to the victims of these crimes. Can't wait for season 11. Jenna left a five-star review on BritishMurders.com. It reads, Hi Stuart, I came across your series while trying to find a good murder podcast. My very first podcast. You're very informative and you really do your research. Keep the episodes coming. And finally, Noddles1988-3214 left a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It reads, Love the last episode and not normally into the interviews. So informative and you ask the right questions. Thank you, Martin, Colin CL, Jenna and Noddles for leaving those reviews. If you'd like to leave a review of the show and have it read on a future episode, you can do so on iTunes, Facebook, Podchaser or at BritishMurders.com. You can also leave star ratings on Spotify. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or donate on a one-off basis via Buy Me A Coffee, you can find the links for each on BritishMurders.com. Thank you, hello and welcome to my newest Patreon members, Simon Doderer, Gemma Green, Kimberly Skerritt and Amy. Please continue emailing case suggestions to BritishMurdersPodcast at gmail.com or message me via social media. You'll not only get the episode covered, but you'll get a cheeky shout out too. And that's it for another episode. I've been Stuart Blues. This has been British Murders. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time. Cheerio.